Welcome to the feature series, How Roger Penske Changed the Indy 500 on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, which celebrates the most successful entrant at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway on the 50th anniversary of his first event in 1969. Presented by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and Bell Racing Helmets, a long-standing partner of Team Penske, this 15-part series spans some of the greatest drivers, managers, mechanics, engineers, and the man himself, Roger Penske, to document the captain's vast influence on America's defining motor race, the Indy 500, and in many instances, the sport as a whole. We'll also be joined by a reporter who covered Penske's Indy debut a half century ago and some of his fiercest rivals, many of whom admit to being fans of the 82-year-old icon. Our guest on this episode of How Roger Penske Changed the Indy 500 is Team Penske President Tim Sendrick, who played a sizable role in turning the captain's declining fortunes in IndyCar around and restoring it to glory starting in the year 2000. Tim Sendrick, you are known as the person who is the man helping to make Roger's team what it has become. You have had a very big influence on what Team Penske is known as today. There's a great history before you came to the team. There's a period where you joined where it needed someone like you. Why don't we start off with your external views of the team, whether it was with Ray Hall or otherwise, what you saw within this program, and maybe what you saw that maybe you could help shape more towards what Roger was wanting when you did come to work. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up here in Indianapolis as a kid and sat behind Roger's pit. And, you know, I, I just, they, they were almost the untouchables. Um, you know, when I would go in the garage area there and the old wooden garages, they were at the end of the garage from where my dad's was at the end of the row, I should say. And, um, you know, Rick Mears, he, he, was, he was the guy that, uh, you know, set the stage in a lot of different ways. But uh, the professionalism of the team was always the thing that I always admired. And the team always seemed to keep to themselves. Um, they were different. They weren't in Indianapolis. They were in Pennsylvania. You know, what race teams are in Pennsylvania? And uh, so it was always there was always a mystique around it, and always one that you wanted to be part of, but you didn't really know how. And for me, you know, if you fast forward to the the point where you know I get out of school and kind of worked, my father had worked for a lot of the teams that honestly were kind of mid pack and back. So I knew more about bump day maybe than I knew mm. about pole day, you know, as far as how it all worked. Uh, and uh, when I went to the Ray Hall organization, really my, my first exposure to Roger on a professional level was uh, in 94 when, when we borrowed his cars at Ray Hall to, uh, to make the show after missing the show in 93 with the, uh, you know, the, the True Sports Project. And then we went there in 94 with the Hondas and we were slow. And uh, we we took that car out of the shopping mall there. It was a year old car, and and uh, we ended up finishing third in the race. Well, the next year, it, the roles were reversed a little bit. Although, of course, Roger was coming to look for our our backup cars, not for a car in, in the <laughs> hotel room or whatever else. But uh, yeah, that that was my real exposure to the team, or my first exposure was when when we loaned those guys the cars to try and make the race that year, um, and. Honestly, it was a bit of an aha moment for me because I, I sat and watched the team operate from afar. I only really got involved when they asked me to or, or provided them what they needed. And it was amazing to me how different my perspective was versus reality. In other words, when they were trying to make the race, 
just the whole way the qualifying line worked and how you got out there and when you went, it was totally foreign to them. And like, you know what? They're, they're not on such a level that I, I, you know, they're not completely elite. <laughs> you know, I still obviously had all the respect in the world, but I, I also started to think, you know what? Um, they're not as, not as far untouchable as maybe what I perceived they were. Um, but then you fast forward to 1999 when from that point on, you know, I, I guess I would say I had a professional relationship with Roger where you ran into him in the paddock or you saw him or whatever. He knew your name. He'd say hello. Um, but it, I've it heard was, that that's, that has meant a lot to some people, the Pensy organization, before they worked for Roger. Oh, yeah. Just the fact that someone who you might think mountaintop, I can't speak to him, but he's actually acknowledging you, getting to know your name. I'll never forget. Funny story. Scott Remke and I, the late Scott Remke, he and I were um, – we were leaving the track one day in 1995, I think it was, and uh, we're both <clears throat> we we used to park in the grass there, or whatever, and we're winding our way through there, and he and I and, and Roger pulls up going the other direction, and his I think it was a Cadillac at the time, nice, and Roger Roger waves, and the whole way back to the hotel, we're arguing about whether he was waving at me <laughs> or waving at him, and uh, I'll never forget it. But uh, anyway, in uh, yeah. Uh, throughout that time, uh, from '95 to '99, um, yeah, it was actually my wife was like, "Why don't you ever go talk to him about? It? You've always wanted to work for him. That's you know, he's kind of been your hero since you were a kid. Why don't you talk to him about it?" And I said, "No, you know, Roger finds the best people. Roger knows me well enough now that if he ever needed me to come work for him, he'd he'd come find me. You know, I don't I don't really think it's the right approach. And yeah, I was loyal to Bobby and and David at the time, and and uh, yeah, that's how it worked. I mean, he, he came and gave me a call in 1999, and, and uh, you know, my my biggest concern, aside from the fact that I was going to move to, I'd be moving to Reading, Pennsylvania, you know, with a, <laughs> Austin wasn't even one at the time, and my older son Tanner was not even three, and my wife was from Ohio and all the rest of it. My bigger concern really was, uh, what what can I really contribute? You know, I didn't really want to be Roger's yes man, and the, the job that he had described to me was, it didn't exist. You know, he mentioned, I don't need a team manager. I need a partner. I need a president. I need mm. somebody that I can hand the keys to. And at 30 or 31 years old, you're like, me? What's the catch? And I spent the next couple months really talking to him about just trying to understand that. I worked for someone who had risen very quickly up the organizational ladder and asked him, how? How did you do that? So you're not just playing ahead a little bit. You're way ahead in age. We wouldn't expect to see you in the senior position. And he said, honestly, my approach is don't try and do the job of the person directly above you. Go one more step and try and perform the duties you're doing today like his or her boss. Mm -hmm. So really, truly trying to execute at an incredibly high level. When I think of you coming in to this organization, I have mental images of someone who seemingly was a perfect match. Was someone like Roger while you were working in a managerial role with other teams, someone who you were looking at trying to, I don't want to say pattern, mm -hmm. but at least say, there's a model here I want to work upwards towards because based again on what we see of who showed up, 
you seem to slot right in. You've been here for a long time as well, which tells us Roger maybe hasn't found many other people who might be able to do this. So there, I'm just curious, is there something intentional that happened there? Well, I had a passion for the place to begin with. You know, I, I was I was a bit of a historian. You know, I, I can still tell you a lot about Roger's history that some days I have to remind him of, honestly. And uh, I, so that that's the start. You know, any anytime you can work for something that's also part of your passion, then you don't really have a job. And I've always said that I've really never had a real job. I cut grass, and then uh, you know I went to work in the racing business, and and that's really all I've done. But you know, for for myself. I appreciated the professionalism. I what I what was very foreign to me was was the business side of life. In other words, how you ran large global businesses, what that all meant. Um, you know, I didn't grow up with a whole lot, so a lot of these things were you know somewhat intimidating. The first time you walk into this board meeting and present on racing to all his board members, and they've never even seen a report on racing before until I showed up. And I didn't know that until I was presenting. And one of the board members says, how come we've never seen a report on the racing program before in one of these meetings? And I didn't really know how to answer it. You know, Roger took over at that point. But uh, for me, it, it was it was a really good time from an opportunity perspective, not only for the obvious job, but the team hadn't won a race in two and a half, three years. And for myself... There was, there was a newness, and the people that were coming into the team, they hadn't achieved their goals either. So there was a freshness to the situation. And there was, honestly, in some ways, an un- unwelcomeness for myself. Really? Because uh, when, when it was d- announced in 99 that Jill DeFerrin was coming to the team, and Greg Moore, if you remember that press conference, and that was before I was even on the radar screen, and like, wow, that's that's a great lineup. That if they can't win with those two guys, they've really got a problem. Well, then, then all of a sudden, we go. Roger goes to make this introduction to the team, and I'm part of it. And it was not until that day that anybody knew that I was part of that program. And the team really didn't understand that part of it because Roger had never talked to him about it. He had never talked to any of the leadership. He had never talked to anybody. He just pretty much dropped me in, oh, by the way, this guy is going to run the show. And you know, Clive Howell at the time, he was the general manager of the team. And I had I'd known Clive from afar, but I couldn't tell you I knew him well. And I remember the first meeting we had, and he and I laugh about it. We were sitting in the conference room there in Reading, and we finished this meeting, and I could tell that I was, I was certainly the outcast in some ways. It was kind of like, why is this guy here? And uh, I said to Clive, I said, hey, Clive, just so you know, I'm, I'm not – I'm not here to do your job. I'm not here to steal your job. I'm here to help figure out how I can contribute. That's why I'm here. He said, we'll see. And he walked off. <laughs> Are you trying to say Clive didn't give you a big sloppy hug? I'm so surprised to hear that. So, and all the years later, you know, I, and it was, it was finally, I think we, we tested Sebring later that year. And he and I were driving from Sebring to Homestead together. And he said, you know what? I want to tell you something. He said, uh, now I understand why you're here. And from that point on, I knew that I had a relationship there, and it was a meaningful one. Because I told him, I said, don't change what you're doing. Let me figure out what I can do. And then, you know, we, we looked at that process, and, and that same day, uh, you know, I'd gone upstairs where the engineering office was, and Tom German was a race engineer at the time for DeFerrin, and uh, kind of ran the engineering department in the U.S. And, and uh, he said to me, he goes, 
and I didn't know him. I said, he said, uh, can I ask you a question? I said, what's that? He says, why do we need a president? And I looked at him. I said, you know, I got no idea. <laughs> but the guy we all work for thinks we need one. So I guess we're about to find out. And that was pretty much how it all started. Wow. Since 1954, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway has served as the proving grounds for the world's most legendary helmet brand. From Jimmy Bryan to Mario Andretti and Elio Castroneves, Bell Helmets has and continues to protect some of the all-time greats. Follow the journey on social media at Bell Racing HQ or by visiting bellracing.com. Let's close on one or two things, Tim. Team Penske was in need of a reboot mm-hmm. when you came on board. Obviously, as you'd mentioned, some decisions had already been made on what would be part of that reboot. But what did you see culturally that either was spot on and needed to be maintained? Were there things, if you were to look back today here, month mm-hmm. of May 2019, and say, these are maybe some new things we helped build reason I ask is we know that with you as part of the team, we're looking at an incredibly rich vein of cart IndyCar mm-hmm. championships, Indy 500 victories, et cetera, et cetera. There was something incredibly positive that happened. I'm just curious what you saw and said, keeping this, reshaping that, maybe relegating that to the past. What I really liked was after two or three years of without success, you know, those those that were just on the gravy train, by that time they'd been weeded out. Mm. And the ones that were there, I felt, were, were the ones that were the fabric of the organization still. And they were the ones that were there for the long haul. And the others had kind of spread themselves out throughout the paddock. But I felt like this, this is a great core group of people. They just need a bit more leadership. But really what they needed was a connection to Roger. You know, they, they needed, uh, call it, a filter, but also someone that he he would trust. And I, I kind of call it the honeymoon. When you come to work for Roger, there, there's a period of time where you get the benefit of the doubt. And he pays you to be right. And if, if you're right, he'll continue to give you the benefit of the doubt. If you're not, then there'll be more and more questions. And, you know, fortunately... That has to be continually earned, though, is the point. Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't stop. You know, that, that, that doesn't... That doesn't go away, and, and, you know, this will be my 20th year working for Roger, and, you know, I always feel that you can't ever get comfortable. You're always expected to figure out the next steps. But I, I also felt like that team that was there in 2000, a little bit of success was going to go a really long way. And it wasn't just the people that changed. If you remember what evolved or changed at that point in time, that he went away from the Penske chassis that yep. was the first year. Uh, Firestone tires became part of it, went to a, a customer engine being the Honda program. And I was familiar with all those guys from my Ray Hall days. So there was a big evolution of, of, I guess, how you go racing at the time that, that, that they didn't understand. And he didn't really understand when it came to vendor customer relationships and how you make the most out of something that somebody else also has. And how you put all those pieces together and, and how you can still then at that time you could use Penske cars. We had this whole factory in England that you could integrate as basically R and D arm in your R and D department. But Penske cars was used to calling all the shots. They were used to telling you what setup you were going to run, what was going to happen, what, what evolved. 
So I had to be the person that changed that, that said, look, it's all about accountability. And the accountability resides in the U.S. for racing the car. And Penske Racing is really, at that time, your customer. So let's figure out how to play off the strengths of those. So it was really from a leadership perspective. I wouldn't say that that from an engineering perspective, I could speak the language and I understood all that, but it wasn't a matter of telling what spring to put in the car because of what we did at Ray Halls or whatever else. In fact, when I came to the team, honestly, we'd been, we'd won two races and they were both at Laguna Seca as Ray Hall. So it wasn't like this was a, a big evolution of setup. It was more about leadership and there was some low hanging fruit there that we, we, we took all the good in the culture and, then tried to take it to the next level from a, a performance and evolution standpoint uh, as a team. Final thing for you, Tim, knowing that you are, and we appreciate the fact that you're one of the great Penske historians while helping to create new history every day for the team. The central theme here is how Roger and this team has changed the Indy 500 now 50 years in. What comes to mind maybe of some of the, I don't want to say uh, lesser items, but we know many of the things, professionalism, mm. polish, and whatnot. Are there any other aspects you can think of, uh, maybe some of the s- lesser-known ones where you say, hmm, Rogers maybe actually influenced some of these areas? And I'll also add uh, a follow-up to that on, say Roger says, Tim, I'm going to go on a cruise for six months. I'm just, I want to check out for a little while, have some me time. What are the cultural institutions the ways of being for you that come to mind of he's entrusted me to carry this legacy forward for a while. How do I do this properly in this man's image? Yeah. Just on that point, honestly, I don't know if I would change anything because I operate on the, I don't tell anybody when he's going to be here. I don't tell anybody when he's going to show up or not show up because I, I guess my expectation is the place should it should continue to evolve or, or run in the same manner in which whether he's here or not. And because when I came into the team, there's a little bit of that. Um, things might be a little different if he's around or not around. And, you know, I, I never believed in that because with Roger, he can show up anytime, anywhere, anyhow, <laughs> by all his different means. So from that perspective, I'm not sure a lot would change other than, for him, it's it's always great to have him around. He's a motivator, and you know, from a motivational aspect, you can't replace that. I don't care who you are, you can't replace that. As far as the evolution of things beyond the obvious, I think the sponsorship and hospitality model of, of the sport in general, the influence that he's had on just sponsors that evolved into hospitality, that evolved into autograph cards, and now you look at how you leverage businesses in motorsport, I think that model was really and continues to be one that he sets the bar. You know, I think he originated a lot of those things. And I still feel as though, you know, all the way back to his driving days, you know, with the, the Xerox special and, and how he leveraged, you know, the Sunoco relationship and that evolved into, you know, Hertz Penske and Cummins and all these things that, that happened over time. Um, it was really, you know, what he saw as the future of motorsport. And, and I think that that's, that's our foundation from a, a business sponsorship model. And that was how Roger Penske changed the Indy 500. You can catch this series 
and more than 500 episodes at the brand new marshallpruittpodcast.com site. All brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and Bell Racing Helmets.